Okay, our text this morning is Genesis 40. It's on page 33 in our Pew Bible. I'll begin at Genesis 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream was its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces cast down today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told him his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and your, your place shall be, uh, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was very favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on the head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. How's everybody? Oh, y'all can do better than that. Good morning. Good, good. I'm from, from the black church. It's okay to talk back. Amen? That's where y'all say amen. Let me try another one. God is good. Y'all say all the time. Some of y'all been around. All right, all right. Uh, Pastor Gabe, uh, Gabe, um, he, had, he covered one chapter last week, so I was not going to be outdone. We're, we're good friends, so I was saying if he's going to do one, we're going to cover two chapters this week. Um, and I'll do horribly by comparison, but anyway, we're going to look at chapters 40 and 41 
in a, um, you know, a short sermon, hour and a half long. We should be able to cover all that. Um, glad to be here. Uh, as I said this morning, and I, I think there's some emphasis in repeating, um, you guys are part of something really beautiful. We're all part of something very beautiful, being part of God's body, but there's something special about Christ's community. So if you're visiting uh, today, you're, you're, you're lucky to be here, and for you all who are already members of Christ's community, there's something special about uh, what Christ's community is doing, and um, I've always felt real welcome. So don't ruin that today, all right? <laughs> all that to be said. Um, I want to pray, and then we're going to go straight into this sermon as we look at these two chapters. So as you think about what you heard um, was spoken through the spoken word this morning, let's, let's go to the throne in prayer and uh, see what God has to say to us today. Amen? Amen. God, again, we thank you. Um, you're a great dad, and we thank you for keeping us as your children uh, in this preach moment, in this hearing moment. Uh, we collectively are in need of you. Um, I stand before the throne with the rest of my brothers and sisters, inept, uh, incapable of doing anything intrinsically good within myself. If it weren't for the fact that you dwell in us, um, there would be no good. But you are a gracious God. Your common grace and your special grace are at work in and among us. And so our prayer in this moment is that you will be pleased in our worship uh, through this hearing of the preached word and through our study of the scriptures. Uh, all these souls are gathered together, and we're all in need of hearing from you. And we have our collective issues that we're thinking about. But uh, we know that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it speaks into every situation. Uh, we just need your help to hear clearly how it relates to the things that we see or the things that we're not seeing clearly or the things we haven't taken notice of that we should. And so now, God, let our motivations and our hearts be focused on you. Uh, not on one another, let them be focused on what you have to say, not on the proclaimer of the word, God. And uh, we collectively stand here knowing that you uh, have your son standing before the throne. What is it that you need us to hear? What is it that you desire from us? What is it that we should walk away from this space into the next space we occupy doing well? We look forward to your answers, God. In Christ's name we pray, Amen. So I went into my aunt's house, who was 20 years older than my dad. She's the matriarch of the family when she was alive. And there's this picture that was kind of in an oval shape, um, really old picture. I think all the old pictures were always oval. And um, there was my great-grandmother uh, and grandfather, <clears throat> the round trees, and it would be on the wall. And um, I don't know if it's because it was late, 18th century, late 19th century or early 20th century, but something about them and their stern faces um, scared me. <laughs> I used to walk by and look at it and go, I stole a Lego, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Like I just felt like that's where I really learned about repentance, right? Um, the round trees, never met them, didn't know my grandparents either for that matter, but um, that picture um, led me to a lot of questions. I often wondered, uh, where did they get such serious faces? And how come they never blink? That's very odd. Um, intriguing to me. But I often wonder about what their lives were like back in that time. What did they do for fun, right? There was no Nintendo back then. I'm telling on myself my age a little bit. Uh, what did they do for fun? What did they, how did they deal with uh, all the climates and culture during that time? How did they um, work, right? How did they live? 
What I can say without question during that era, just like I can say for each of you all, even I don't know most of you well, is that God was with them. And I don't mean in some rhetorical sense, God's with you. He certainly is, right? But he was with them. He was with them uh, with the situations that they dealt with. He was with them in their ups and downs. He was with them with their failures. He was with them when they succeeded. He was with them. And he was certainly with them in the work that they did as well, paid or unpaid. So it really begs this question for us today um, that I want you all to really think about, and really we do, whether we want to or not. As we head into this Labor Day weekend, and all of you all had pushed away all your work, whether you're in college or school, or um, you're working paid or unpaid, retired, you're still working, and you're thinking, I don't have to deal with that till Tuesday. Well, I want you to snatch that back for just a few moments, put that back into your plate for just a few moments, and let me ask this question. What could be possible if you really believed that God was with you? Let me ask again. What could be possible if you really believed that God was with you? You know what I'm saying? You walk into the cubicle, you sit down, and before you can sit down, you go, oops, and God's sitting there saying, I'm here with you all day. What are we doing today? Right? You're scrolling through your Google planners, or you're looking at things, and God's saying, let's put that here and let's move this here. You're working as a truck driver, or you're working at home, taking care of the household, making things are done the way they're supposed to do, and God's right there with you saying, what are we doing today? What are we up to today? What could be possible if you really believed that God was with you? I think there's three results that we find in Genesis 40 and 41 about what happens when we remain devoted to our work and we really believe that God is with us. Number one, if we remain devoted to our work, we realize that we remain devoted to our work even when it's unrecognized work, even when it's obscure work or unrecognized work. Two, we remain devoted to our work because our work is remembered. It's a remembered work. And three, we remain de devoted to work because it becomes a redirected work. First, we see in the text that we are devoted to our work because it's an, even if it's an unrecognized work. The U.S. News and World Report has a, 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 a stat that says 43% of people report feeling isolated from others, and the same number report feeling that they lack companionship in their lives, and they lack uh, relationships that have real meaning. What we have to do and think about is, how much does that apply to the place where we spend the bulk of our time awake each week? How much meaningful relationship do we have to the work we do and the people that we work with? And I don't mean just the bad relationships. Y'all immediately were probably thinking about the people that you don't like. Bob, or I hope there's no Bobs here. There's no Bobs here. We use Bob. Okay, just for a moment. Bob is at work. I'm not looking forward to being next to Bob because Bob is always bothering me, right? Not just the bad relationships, but our relationships is the work that we do and the people that we spend the bulk of our awake time with. So this one summer, I took a job as a temp agency when I was in high school. And they sent me to this old factory on the south side outside of town where I had to stand all day at a table and I had a stack of shoe boxes. And I'd take a shoe box, put it down, take the shoes out, take the tissue, you know the tissue that's in the inside of the shoes, pull the tissue out, put it in a trash can, put the shoes back in the box, stack it over here. Take a shoe box, shoe out, tissue, shoe back in the box, stack it. Shoe, shoe box. Tissue paper. And I started to wonder after a while, why would anybody want to keep doing this all day? 
So we read the scriptures looking back with our righteous lens and 2,000 or 4,000 years of theological bows all nicely tied together, right? We forget that this is not the reigning Joseph when we read this part of the text, demonstrating how Egyptian pantries can work well and facilities can store uh, food well. This is not Joseph with the amazing Technicolor dream coat at this point, right? This is not Joseph, the little brother. This is Joseph, the little brother who has dreams and then he gets beat up by his brothers, right? This is Joseph, who's the immigrant. Joseph, who's ascending the corporate ladder only to later briefly be lied about. And consequently, in Genesis 39.1, it says, after all these things, he finds himself in an obscure prison outside of Pharaoh's presence, stuck in a dungeon all day long. So when we remove that 4,000 years of theology and just wander into a mundane dungeon or obscure prison, uh, we see the experiences like Joseph, of Joseph like we see our own experiences, right? We wander into dark spaces with no electricity and uh, disconnected from community and the repetition of getting up to do the same thing every day. He wakes up every morning, ah, another day in prison, right? And we realize that it's possible in those moments that he probably asked the same questions that we would have asked if we were in the same situation as him. Did I do something to earn this? Am I being punished for being in this situation? I mean, there's 19 chapters before we get to the Joseph who tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That Joseph hasn't come yet, right? Right now, he's just in this jail cell trying to figure out what's going on. Joseph, and it's important to note that God... and chapters, uh, excuse me, verses, uh, chapters 40 and 41 is not speaking in this text. He's with them, but he hasn't said anything. Joseph's not yet the ruler, and so where he is is in an unrecognized situation. Joseph is in a recluse situation, and perhaps he's asking the questions that you ask in your life as well. Where would I have been if I'd have just kept my mouth quiet about that dream, right? Or maybe I should have just told my dad and left my idiot brothers out of it. Or all I was trying to do was the right thing, and it never works out. Obscurity can lead you to think that your work isn't of value. Let me say that again. Obscurity can lead you to think that your work is not of value. We all have prisons or empty experiences of proverbial opening of shoeboxes and pulling out tissues of paperwork or processing uh, uh, investment files or trash bags or diapers or even another day of pulling out unemployment, right? And you're pulling out what seems to be flimsy pieces of meaningless uh, paper or tissue, putting it back in the box again, only to grab it and do the same thing tomorrow. Obscurity can lead you to question the value of your work. And if we're not careful, obscurity and work can lead us to question the value of ourselves. But Joseph models for us that obscurity can actually lead to reaping great rewards, right? Or maybe it's because he's in prison, he doesn't have the luxury of getting out of it, right? Some of us can check out and move on to something else, but in this case, he's stuck. What we do find Joseph doing is while it may seem meaningless situation to him, he keeps doing the best he can. He recognizes that he's not the only one in obscurity, right? There's some other Egyptian government workers that are there, this cupbearer and this baker who are there also. And notice what happens. In, in chapter 40, verses 7 and 8, it says these words. So he asked Pharaoh's official who were with him in custody in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? And they asked him, we both had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. Now it's intriguing to note here, what's implicit in his question is that he had to have had a relationship with them to know that they're in a worse situation than just being in prison, 
right? Most people would be in prison or in dungeon when they wake up every morning and go, ah, another day in prison, right? They're already down because of that. But he, he recognizes that there's an extended downness, an extended uh, sadness that they have for him to recognize something's different about the sadness you have today. Even in prison, he's doing good work. In this moment of what could seem like a life impasse, we don't find Joseph losing sight of what he does well, right? Pharaoh has no use for him, so he's been put away from the palace. But Joseph does not equate his calling with rule keepers. Uh, He could have concluded in this situation, I'm done, I'm not uh, interpreting dreams anymore, that business is closed, all it does is get me hurt or make people think that I'm threatening them somehow. Uh, But Joseph shows us that his calling is not lost in obscure moments. His work, his prison work matters as well. Um, And note this, Joseph concludes not only that his his work matters, but so does the cupbearer, so does the baker as well. At least a little. Look at verse 8, it says this, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. Bring me your dreams. Let me help you interpret them the right way. Joseph models for you that any form of prison doesn't keep you from remaining devoted to your work. We can stay involved in our work even when it feels like prison. Anybody felt like prison when the work you do? Nobody's like, yeah, the work where you all work. We got two believers. Is there another? Is there another? Right? Everybody's like, no, I love my job. I need to work where you all work. Just like you, there's days where I wonder, if we're being honest, what's the point of what I'm doing? Pulling out tissues out of boxes. I made some conclusions, but I've yet to gain a definite answer about what that particular temp job was I had. But what I've concluded that I know for certain, even though I don't understand why they took the tissue out of the shoes, maybe to save someone down the road, they're just happy about the shoes. Ooh, I can just put them on straight without stubbing my toe. I don't know. But at the very least, it helped me to understand that the tissue reminds me that the bulk of our life is really filled with mundane, ordinary moments. The bulk of our lives are filled with mundane moments. And if we chase after sensational moments, we'll spend the most of our lives running after our life, our life. If we first become the type of people who are devoted to work, even of obscurity or uh, work that's unseen, even if we don't understand its purpose, we'll see secondly that we remain devoted to our work and we'll realize that it's work that's remembered. I said, it, uh, I said it twice to make sure you all caught me. Did I say it twice? Did you catch me? No? Okay. Our work is remembered. Let me ask this. Do you remember what you were doing last Wednesday at 3.25 p.m. in the evening? The side of the room's holy over here. They're like, no, I don't. I don't remember at all. Probably not. And using, but using my spiritual capacity and discernment, I think I could answer for all of you all what you were doing. You were doing something. We forget what we did last week, right? We don't remember a lot of what we do. It's no wonder what we, we forget that what other people do also last week. I'm a, probably a teacher more than anything, and Gabe calls me Pastor Chef to, to irritate me. I'd much rather you call me Chef. Um, but more than anything, I have a love for Ephesians. It's probably because of my background in architectural engineering. So about 10 years ago, I uh, went through some courses and classes and learned some Greek and learned a whole lot about Ephesians wanted to share with anybody who really wants to learn about it. And so I gathered a few of my friends together. Another friend gave us a facility. We met for about six weeks or so. Five or six of us came together. I poured out all that I could about what I learned about Ephesians and how I was excited about it and wanted to share it. And as quickly as it began, it was over. 
They forgot about it. I thought, and I forgot about it as well, with the exception of my hard drive and some files. I forgot about it. I don't think Joseph forgot about what he was going through. After making time to listen to the cupbearer, he did the good work of interpreting the cupbearer's dream, and then he said these words to him, to him, and I'm paraphrasing. Don't forget about me. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says this. But remember me when it goes well for you and show me kindness. Make mention of, uh, of me to Pharaoh and bring me out of this prison, for I was really kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and I've done nothing wrong here for which they should put me in a dungeon. There's nothing more frustrating in life than when you do all you can in your flawed humanity and your work seems to be overlooked. Well, let's be honest, when you've done your best, but because we're flawed, you fail, right? The baker's dream was that he was going to die, and he, sadly he did, right? The text doesn't tell us that Joseph tells him to tell Pharaoh about it, and I think mainly because that would have been rude, right? Hey, um, I interpreted your dream, and um, you're going to die in three days, buddy. I'm sorry that's going to happen. But hey, before you do, could you go tell Pharaoh um, that I'm down here, and you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll talk to the cupbearer. text doesn't tell us how Joseph feels in this moment. Um, we don't get the vantage point of his experience in it. Uh, but let me ask you this. In Genesis 40, 23, you hear these words. But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot about him. How would you feel in that moment? Where would you be in that moment? Sometimes you can do your best work, and guess what? It falls on deaf ears. It's like it doesn't even matter. No pun intended. The time between a request and waiting is where we tend to run into troubles because we start to question the effectiveness of our work. You get a degree, you're waiting on a job, the job doesn't come, and then you start to think, maybe there's something I did in the work that I did it's not paying off the way it should. You bake a cake, and you're looking, you keep looking to make sure it's going to rise. You do your best work, and you're the one who ends up in a dungeon. Let me repeat that. You do your best work, and you feel like you're the one who ends up being put in a dungeon. Some people won't remember you, or worse, some people only remember for the things that you've done wrong, or the things you've done wrong are much louder than the things that you tried to do that were good. And if we're being honest, we forget the works of others as well. If you really have to think about it, we have a plain example in scripture in Romans 3.23, it says, for all have forgotten, excuse me, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? Our forgetfulness is really a byproduct of being in a fallen world. Forgetfulness is entrenched in who we are because of our fallen nature. We forget that we forget. They had forgotten, if we think about the grand story of scripture, up to this point, just in Genesis, there's a lot that that the, the people of, during that time had already forgot. They for, already forgot what the garden looked like. They forgot that they were really, at, dis, at most, distant cousins. We're really all related. We tend to forget that. They forgot that they used to speak the same language. They forgot uh, that God travels with them everywhere they go. Jacob couldn't remember his name. And they forgot to tend to the land, be fruitful with it. Instead, they exploited it and took over it. They forgot we forget. Just a few months ago at church, at the church I attend, some 10 years after spewing some dislocated facts about Ephesians, uh, a gentleman walked up to me and another guy, his name's Grizzy, he's a teen pastor, and every teen pastor should be named Grizzy, really. <laughs> walked up to him and me, they exchanged greetings, and then he looked at me and said, are you Sheffield? And he looked kind of intimidating to me, so I was like, I never heard of him. 
Never, he's, he's over there somewhere. I don't know. I don't know who he is. Nah, I'm just joking. Uh, but I said, yeah. And he said, you, you taught uh, us about Ephesians a long time ago. Man, that was so good. That was so helpful. And that, that moment, I realized I forgot the work that I had done. But somebody else didn't forget Sometimes we'll forget the work that we do, right? Sometimes others will disregard your good work and, until they forget about it or you forget about it. Sometimes you'll do your best and just being perfectly honest in a fallen world, it just won't ever be good enough. But the good work is objectively not defined by the giver of the work or the recipient of the work. It's someone else who's really the good judge of it. Matter of fact, it's really what Paul reminds us in Ephesians because that's the only other book in the Bible I've actually read besides this chapter of uh, Genesis, thanks to Gabe. Um, he, he tells us in Ephesians, the Ephesian writer reminds the, 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 in the letter to the Ephesians, he tells them, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand. Our work is remembered because God does not forget. Let me say that again. Our work is remembered because God does not forget it. And you may be asking, Chef, that's cool, but how does, you know, my work in computations or running numbers or uh, driving a bus or I, I take care of the home, how does that compare to teaching Ephesians? Ephesians is such more, much more of a sacred thing to do, right? That's a great question and something we have to consider. And I would simply ask you, does your father, who knows every hair on your head, consider parts of your life more important than others? Or let's consider, does he, did he consider just a few fish and loaves from a little kid as insignificant? Or did he say that's good work, put it in the bag? Because guess what? It's sufficient to feed over 5,000 people. See, in the kingdom, there's always enough. And what he reminds us in that good work is that God does not forget. He sees what we do. He knows what we're about. And he considers it to be important. Even when it seems like it takes so long to be of value. Look at Genesis 41.1. Look what it says. At the end of full, two full years, does your text say two years? It's okay to answer back. Okay, just checking. All right. At the end of, this is a very different culture. I'm getting used to this. This is different. <laughs> it's okay to say, yes, it's in the scripture, preacher. Very good. <laughs> two years. After two years, Pharaoh has a dream, and he's standing by the Nile. There would be two years of him waiting in the dungeon. Two years of sitting around trying to figure out what's going on next. Two years of him certainly asking God, well, did you... Forget about me, I'm down here. Two years of him wrestling through, uh, trying to understand, for him, unemployment in this moment. Other of us, some of us looking to be at that next step, and we're waiting for that step to happen, and it hasn't happened. Two years of ups and downs. What we really see is that in this moment, God likes to change things up just to keep us engaged. And some of us, the tension is really we're learning to understand in God and his infinite wisdom and his mercy and his providence is not just remembering my work, because that's what I won't normally think about, right? But he's remembering the work of every other person as well. Joseph, you got to stay there for a moment, because I need time for Pharaoh to have a dream so that he'll need you again. Sometimes we have to wait because he's moving other people where they need to be also. Genesis 41.9 says this, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I recall my failures. Pharaoh was enraged with his servants, and he put me in prison in the house of the captain of the guards and me and the chief baker. We, had, uh, we each had a dream one night. Each of us had a dream with its own meaning. Now a young man, a Hebrew, a servant of the captain of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted the meaning of each of our perspective dream, respective dreams for us. 
It happened just as he said to us. Pharaoh restored me to my office, but he impaled the baker. God does not forget. And because of that, uh, he can make anyone remember what he needs them to remember. But get this, at just the right time. You would think that after the cupbearer saw the baker get impaled and he didn't die, that he'd remember, oh yeah, the reason I'm alive is because of this Hebrew guy that was in prison that told me about my dream. But for some reason, he forgot. And then he forgot the next day. And then two years went by before he remembered. Um, but even though uh, the cupbearer forgot, he doesn't forget forever because God does not forget what happens then is because he remembered at that moment, now Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret, and now Joseph is needed again. We remain devoted to our work because God remembers. So you may feel like, and I may feel like, or here's the other part, you may see people on Tuesday who feel like that they're pulling empty, flimsy pieces of tissue that nobody notices or recognizes. Uh, or maybe you're a leader, right? You're a leader or a manager, and you feel like your work is un, uh, un, not respected or that people look over you, they gloss over the good things that you're trying to do. Maybe you process paperwork or you deal with customers who look through you instead of at you, right? Maybe you're that type of person who does the work the best you can, and it seems like you're not looking for accolades and drum beats coming down the street and parades or anything, but you just want people to understand that you're trying to do your work well. People forget but guess what? You do too. But guess what? God does not forget. And this is no pie in the sky type of conclusion we should make. There will be times where we will do good work well, and it just won't be good enough. Or there'll be times where we'll do our best effort to do the work well, and it won't work. It'll fail. But God does not forget, and he doesn't forget the work that we do. We have to remain devoted to it, if no other reason than the fact that God remembers what we're doing. We saw that even uh, we should work, remain devoted to work even when it seems unrecognized. We should remain devoted to our work because it's remembered. And lastly, number three, we remain devoted to work because work causes redirection. When I was uh, working and occupying my calling as an engineer for a number of years, uh, and actually not far from here, just over the hill on the other side of the bottoms, West Bottoms, um, uh, an Australian company took over. And when they came in, they brought a new philosophy on how they wanted things to be done. They brought in new metrics about what they expected. They brought in managers that replaced a lot of people who were in leadership. Uh, they brought in new logos, and I had to throw my old T-shirts away. It was a lot of changes that happened during that time. I really liked the old T-shirts, too. I'm a little upset about that still. Uh, but during that time, uh, we began to wonder and worry, well, maybe I'm going to lose my job. Maybe we'll be fired. Maybe they'll late, have cut, uh, um, cutbacks and that kind of thing. We were concerned about it. And then they really pushed this idea about safety. So safety and everything. There were safety sheets that we had to have on our walls and cubicles and safety uh, checks that we would do all over the place. They had us walking around, going from cubicle to cubicle, investigating and saying, you should push those wires back under there. You should move those paper clips so you don't get a tetanus. Or something. Like We had to do safety checks, and we're thinking, why are we doing all this safety stuff in the cubicles? We can understand in the field where construction really happens and there's more of a threat but why do we have to do it? Work causes redirection. The more that we understood what they were getting at, the more we saw the point of what they were thinking. We found that it wasn't just an add to something that they wanted us to do. It wasn't just adding safety. It wasn't a new rule that we're putting on that you need to abide by. Their philosophy, their redirection, if you will, will was if you have safe uh, factories and you make safe construction and you have safe offices, and you have safe beams and columns, and you have safe builders, 
then we make safe products. And when we make safe products, we keep people safe and we make more money that way. They helped us to understand that when our work is redirected, it creates a new conclusion that we should make. Now, that was one part of it. But the other part was about the end of the year, I got this bonus that I wasn't expecting. And I thought, what mean? Like the Old Testament, King James type language in, in, uh, Genesis, or in uh, the Gospels. What meaneth thou this? This is interesting. <laughs> I said, well, how do we get this bonus? Because we weren't that productive. They said, part of your bonus is based off of you doing safety. I said, oh, redirected. I like this work now. So you're telling me that if we do safety checks, then part of our bonus will be predicated on making sure we keep the cubicle safe? They said, yes. I became the floor warden after that point. Get that up, pick this up, get this cleaned up. There's dust on your desk, get it off there. We've got to make bonuses. Work is redirected when we do the uh, work for the right reasons. We could be wading through oceans and waves of uncertainty, right? Trying to find a way up. When we remain devoted to work well, doing it well, it causes redirection. And you can see this all through Genesis, but especially in this area as well. Remember, we're looking at a bird's eye view of Joseph. We only see what he's going through, his experience. We don't understand what he's thinking about, how he's responding to it, but we only get the bird's eye view. And Moses cleans it up for us a little bit. The text tells us that uh, that Pharaoh says, please tell Pharaoh that I have done nothing wrong. You can almost hear the like uh, melodious sound of how he said, I've done nothing wrong, right? But if you were in a dungeon, if I was in a dungeon, I think it would sound a little different, right? There's some kids in the room, so we won't use any language we may think of. We also know how the consummation of the story is going to end. We know we're reading this thinking and knowing at the end of the story everything's going to work out. But Joseph is going through the life of this experience. He's a government worker who doesn't take a lateral position. He's demoted, but not even just demoted. He's put in a dungeon. That's not a, okay, everything's great type of response, right? Why? Why should we understand this, this thought about him remaining devoted to his work? There's something to be said about Joseph's integrity, which we learned about last week in Pastor Gabe's sermon, which almost made me call in sick today. Um, There's something we can learn about his integrity. And there's another thing that we see in chapter 39 that was repeated a number of times. The Lord was with him. When you head into work uh, tomorrow, tomorrow's a holiday? Let me change my notes here. Hold on. When you head into work Tuesday, right, or later today in our fast-changing society about which days are off days, the question that you have to ask, and you will answer it whether you want to ask it or answer it or not, is, is God at work with you? Is he with you? Is the Lord of heaven and earth with you? Is he there, involved and engaged in it? You get the chance to answer that. You have to decide. Is this work disconnected? Is it just secular work that I'm doing all day, paid or unpaid, or is it sacred work? You'll have to decide. Is there value in the things that you do each day, even in the most mundane of moments? And you'll need to really decide theologically what all this is really tied together is, does Jesus save souls, or does he save souls and creation, that creation that's groaning for redemption as well? Which one is it? You'll make a decision, and it'll affect how you do your work. When you are redirected to God's purposes and your presence in the workplace does not detract from the fact that sometimes work is dehumanizing, right? Some work is is dehumanizing, some work is mundane, some work that doesn't seem like it pays out in the end, some involvements of things that we do, we feel like we should be doing something else. A lot of work can seem menial to us or or, uh, not as respected, um, but in some way, you and I have to believe that it's work that matters to God. 
whether you're retired or whether you work a job or whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're in school, whatever, whatever it may be, you have to make the decision and believe that it, it matters to God. And when you start to believe that kind of thing, that to me sounds a lot like faith, which what I think the scriptures tell us is something you're going to need uh, when you head in to earnestly seek him on Tuesday. Once you've decided that your work can matter, then the question is really, how does it matter? In chapter 41, we have another dream, right? Pharaoh has a dream. The baker's dead. The cupbearer remembered why he was in jail. He reminds Pharaoh of this. Pharaoh has a dream. And now we, we would really kind of expect, and you know, I wouldn't have been like Joseph in this situation. He goes to interpret Pharaoh's dream. I personally would have been, at this point, so frustrated, I would have said, you know what? Get your own dream interpretation. Bailiff, take me back to the dungeon. I'm done interpreting dreams. But Joseph is redirected in his work. It doesn't matter where your occupation is. If there's a calling, there's a way to do it. And let me say this to you parenthetically without sounding like an absolute. If you know him and if you belong to him, your calling is secure. That means that his uh, your identity is wrapped up in Christ's identity. It means that his kingdom is a part of who you are now. His light is part of who you are now. His purposes are a part of who you are. And guess what? Even in the darkest of moments and experiences that we go through, nobody can take your calling away from you because you belong to him. Circumstances unfold. Things will happen in life. We'll have ups and downs in America. We are entrenched in the assumption that progression is always going to happen. We become privileged in thinking that our future is secure in that way. But guess what? Even if it falls apart, nobody can take your calling away from you. You belong to him. You're always his. So Joseph understands that. And he obliges and again is in the presence of Pharaoh. He doesn't go into a long defense in this moment about you should get Potiphar because he's messed me up and this, that, and the other. He doesn't uh, question Pharaoh's leadership capability. Uh, he doesn't talk about the fact that uh, the cupbearer should be punched for forgetting for two years. I'd have punched the cupbearer, actually. I'd have punched him. He doesn't punch him uh, or anything like that. He just keeps interpreting dreams because that's his calling. He keeps reimagining what's possible for Egypt. His work is redirected. It's re redirected work when we really understand what's going on around us. Pharaoh explains his dream, and um, he wants a reductionistic answer, right? Pharaoh's explaining, I had this dream, and it was about skinny cows, not the ice cream, right? And there's skinny cow ice cream. <laughs> Fat cows and Nile River and stocks of grain and, and uh, lions and tigers. That's the wrong story. Um, <laughs> nobody can explain it to him. That's the key part that we recognize in that is, I've had this dream. It keeps reoccurring, and nobody can explain it to him. And Joseph stoops down to Pharaoh and gives him an answer to what he needs. There's really two intriguing points that we can see about Joseph's response in this, and we talk about redirected work. Joseph does not say that, uh, doesn't get into the fact that, or acknowledge that he's the only one that can interpret the dream, right? In this moment, he could have said, yes, I'm the only dream interpreter in all of Egypt and parts of America that you haven't even learned about yet. He doesn't say any of that. I'm the chosen one. We don't hear him saying any of that kind of language. He just answers instead says, and look at Genesis 41, 16. It is not within my power, but God will speak concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. So even in this moment, we see that integrity of Joseph showing itself. He redirects the work to the one who's really the one who can interpret the dream. 
Joseph's just the speaker of it. In this case, his good work is through the mouth. In our case, a lot of times, it's through the work of our hands. Number two, we see uh, the intriguing point about the response and how it's redirected, and that Joseph doesn't give the quick answer, but he gives a redirected answer, really pointing to this grand narrative that we've all been uh, 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 tied to or uh, that we see more clearly throughout Scripture. Pharaoh wants a reductionistic answer, right? I've had this dream. I think it could cause trouble for me. Give me the answer. Here's the problem. Give me the answer. Give me the productivity on the other end. And we see that throughout society, right? Here's an issue. Just fix that issue. Here's my problem. Just fix that problem. Joseph backs up and shows him a bigger picture and helps him understand, dude. He probably didn't say dude. I don't know if the word in Egyptian would be dude. Let's just say dude this morning, right? That's what he would say. Dude. You've got to see this thing differently. You need to be redirected in the work that needs to happen. It's not just about prison or about interpretations or solutions only to an immediate problem. The problem is redirection. It's like Peter, who's walking on water, had to be reminded that waves go away when our focus is clear. Genesis 41, chapter, verse 25 and 28, say the same things twice. Look what it says here. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, both dreams of Pharaoh have the same meaning, and this is what I really want to focus on. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then look at verse 28. This is what I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. You know, it's not about truck driving or investments or um, uh, crowdfunding. It's not about entrepreneurship. It's not about teaching or, or um, homemaking. It's not about changing diapers. It's not insurance selling. It's not engineering. It's not teaching Greek. All those things are important. It's not about analytical research or homemaking or justice making for that matter. It's about redirecting, paradigm shifting, gospel forming what is actually happening. When your hands are redirected and you are uh, what happens when our hands are redirected and our work is redirected, we are conveying to the world through the brains that we have and the hands and the feet that we have, this is what God is going to do. We're telling the world this is what God does when we do good work well. It is really a non-subtle reminder that there's something transcendent about the things that we do each day. Yes, it is about those things that we're involved in, but there's, there's another set of hands, if you will, that are at work when my hands are at work also. Your work takes on invaluable potential for meaning when we're convinced, when we believe, that, and we assure each other because we need to remind each other of it as well, that the Lord is going to do something with it. Yeah, you know, some jobs don't pay out the way that we hope they would. And some efforts that we do don't pay out the way that we want them to. But guess what? It matters to God. It matters to God, and it matters to me as well. So we see, again, these three ways that when we're devoted to our work, number one, we d remain devoted to work even when it's not recognized. We remain devoted to work because it's remembered, and we remain devoted to work because it causes a redirecting, a re-shifting, a paradigm-shifting, a gospel-informing type of conclusion. So I refer back to the question I started with you all with. Do you all remember the question? Everybody's saved on this side. I'm not so sure about y'all. <laughs> Let me ask it again. What could be possible if you really believe that God was sitting in the chair right next to you? What could be possible if you really believe that his, your work mattered to him? What could be possible if you walked into the places you go in on Tuesday and you really believe that God was right there with you? So I love the picture of my grandparents, great-grandparents, excuse me, uh, more now so than even when I was young. And I'm not as scared of them as I used to be, although I still flinch a little bit when I look at them. 
Um, you know, it's not the intriguing component of um, the way they look to me. You know, the sternness of the eyebrows and the part. I like that part he has, and it's kind of clean. I like the bow tie. It's, it's not even, you know, the fact that they look like they're very diligent, at least for the picture. Um, what's been become more significant to me is not really even them in the picture. It's the photographer. The fact of the matter is, determining who took this picture would be virtually impossible, right? The photographer is unrecognized. The photographer, uh, for most people, would not be remembered. But by nature of there being a photo, begs for a photographer, begs that somebody had to take the picture. And what that tells me is that person's work matters because they were willing to take the picture with the Polaroid. They had Polaroids in the 19th century? The floppy ones? Yeah, I think that's when that started. Because they were willing to do that, and their work mattered, now I have a piece of my family. Now I know a little bit more about who I am or who I, who I came from. And that image then says a thousand words of work and benefit for me and for uh, my, the, re the rest of my family. It reimagines for me what my family is really about. It's not just a story about slavery. It's not just a story about ups or downs. I got a picture of who they actually are. And that's really what we see with Christ doing is he looks us in the face through the things that we do and helps us to understand, I remember you, and I remember what you're doing as well. <clears throat> like Joseph, you and the photographer began to reimagine what could be. Right? Joseph reimagines what could be for, it, for Egypt and that's the kind of thing that can happen for you when you start to reimagine the work that you do. And you know what? That sounds a lot like your savior that you're following. He reimagined what could be for an entire universe, and they killed him for it. But knowing that they would do that, he still went to a cross. But before he went to the cross, there was a table of some sort with a few people gathered around it, same kind of table they'd been sitting at, same kind of conversations that they've had over and over again. Same plates, same type of food they'd always ate, eaten. Same kind of conversations that they'd had over and over again. And we see Jesus doing exactly what Joseph did. He's devoted to his work. It's not mundane work, it's work that matters. How many plates have they eaten together? How many times have they leaned on each other, done the same thing? How many conversations had he repeated and had with them over and over again? over and over again. Tissue papers pulled out, and each time he pulled it out, he said, each one of them matters. I threw my tissue in the trash. God doesn't do that with us. We find him doing what we see Joseph doing as well. He's devoted to his father's work in an unrecognized table. They're eating at a table with Jesus as he's getting close to head to a cross, and they still don't understand who he is. Unrecognized work, but he still ate with them. He remains devoted to his work and, and remember, understanding that it's remembered, but now he's telling them, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And he's devoted to his, his father's work, and he's redirecting it as well because he told them very clearly, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, this bread is not just bread anymore, right? It's representative of my body, and this cup is not just a cup anymore. It's representative of my blood. Jesus, in even the most mundane thing that we do all the time, we eat all the time, right? Some of you are on diets. You don't eat all the time, but you should. You eat from time to time, right? 
he shows us that when we reimagine moments and understand that God is present in it, that he's involved in it, it can be uh, obscure work, but it's still work that matters. It can be work where nobody sees it clearly, but guess what? God sees it and he remembers it. And while everybody else may not see the significance of it, and they may consider it to be mundane, it's not mundane work to God. So I leave you with that question again. What could be possible in Kansas City as we spread from this place, going into our representative occupations and callings, if we really believe that God was right there with us? We get a chance to remember one of the most mundane things that happens, but it becomes the most significant things. And the Lord's Supper, as you all observe it from Sunday to Sunday, <clears throat> we're reminded of ourselves uh, weekly of God's sacrifice for us, and that's a good thing for us to do. So let's remember this morning why we came to this table, why we come to this table, and what it means by recalling what has been passed down to us. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 it says, For the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're new with us today, please know that... Uh, I messed it up again. <laughs> this is Gabe's sheet. I'm trying to say this, and I've screwed it up. Please know that all that we have given, uh, all that have given their lives to Jesus and who trust him and him alone for their salvation are welcome to this table. Let me say it a different way. He's just laughing at me like he just butchers it every time. I'm going to practice this. Uh, one of these Sundays, I'm going to just walk in and say it and leave, right? Is that okay? <laughs> Let me say it this way. Um, as we, w- we would say, at least I say it when I do communion, it would be impossible for us to ask you to eat and drink in remembrance of someone that you don't know. So we would ask that you know him first so that you can remember who he is, okay? But in just a few moments, we invite you to come to the center aisle, loop around and stop at one of the two communion serving stations. There you will gather in groups of four to six, take an ordinary piece of bread, hold on to it, dip it in the ordinary juice, and then you'll partake as a group, remembering that maybe there's someone else that's present with you, right? And if you have a child who uh, has not yet professed uh, trusting or faith in Jesus, our service would love to offer them a blessing in the same way Jesus blesses the little ones. Uh, if any of those un- uh, instructions are unclear, it's Gabe's fault. <laughs> but there's some other real experts out here, so do what they tell you to do and it'll be fine. And um, as you come to this table this morning, remember God's great love for us and um, you know there's a table where we'll gather together that we're anticipating as well let's keep that in mind also all right let's pray